Now let us turn to one of the passages that we have uh, looked at, and perhaps we could look at it in the metrical version, uh, Psalm 130. Psalm 130, and in the uh, metrical version. I don't want so much uh, this evening to look at a particular verse as to look at uh, the psalm in general. And just to say from the outset, um, it is a psalm that begins in the depths and it may not seem to be a psalm for a thanksgiving service, but uh, by the time you get to the end of this psalm, there is such a dramatic turnabout uh, within the songwriter and he tells us what is at uh, the centre of that turnaround. By the end of the psalm, it changes from the depths to euphoria and uh, that's why we want to look at it this evening because the thing that turns it around is something that ought to make each and every one of us euphoric and ought to create a tremendous spirit of thankfulness uh, in our hearts. Now we do note that it begins in the depths, Lord, from the depths, to thee I cried, my voice, Lord, do thou hear, unto my supplications voice, give an attentive ear. Now, when the word depths comes into our minds, we very often think in terms of the depths of the sea or the depths of the ocean. And indeed, in the other psalm that we have read this evening and indeed sung, the depths of the ocean uh, are mentioned in it. And we are told what the experience is of men who go to sea in ships that there are times when they go to sea that they reel and stagger like men drunk at their wit's end they be and they are at their wit's end purely because of the forces eh, of nature you know sometimes when you're out at sea and you stop to look at the waves all around you it sends a shiver down your spine when you think of the power that there is there. You know, sometimes when you watch the waves crashing in against a rock face, there is such terrific power there, and it makes you feel so incredibly small, and you understand how it is that the sea can swallow up so quickly so many men in an instant. Now of course the sea is part of nature and it's not nature with a capital N. Nature is not something absolute and autonomous in itself. It is God's nature and when we look at nature around us we can discover a great deal about God. 
whether it's out there in the sea or whether it's say standing at the foot of a great mountain you know you can understand why uh, people want to worship mountains throughout the world this day it's one of the phenomena of nature that speaks to us of might and power and of our limitations you know you stand looking at the mountains sometimes and you know that you're human and you know that there are things around you that are much greater than you are and then when you look up in the sky at night on a starry night you know how sometimes it sends that shiver down your spine again when you think in terms of someone made all these stars that each one is a sun burning out there millions of miles away and you know as we progress as a human race the shiver that runs down our spine just from nature itself becomes greater you know we've sent that uh, Hubble Space Telescope out there and we're using it and we're discovering that this universe of ours it's much greater than we ever imagined it's much more massive than we ever thought in our wildest dreams and there's still so much more to discover and it speaks to us of the greatness of this God that is much much greater than we've ever begun to imagine the creative works of this God we see them and we meet with them and they remind us so often of our fragility of our weakness of our limitations of our vulnerability that's what happens to men who go to sea in ships and it even happened to the disciples you remember on the Sea of Galilee on one occasion they were crossing that sea and the Lord Jesus Christ weary to the bone put his head on a pillow at the back of the boat before long Galilee had turned from a reasonable a navigable piece of water to a raging sea but they had experienced men on board some of these men were fishermen who had plied these waters all their days and they knew what they were about but by and by even the experienced men on board were beginning to lose their nerve and before you know where you are they are shaking the Lord awake and they are crying out in his ear carest thou not that we perish these men were made so afraid even the followers of Christ by the waters of Galilee and let's remember that the waters of Galilee are very small when you compare them to the Minch or the North Sea and they are tiny compared to the Atlantic Ocean there are things all around us that remind us of who we are and what our limitations are and that all around us there are frontiers
Then there was another man who found himself on another day in raging waters. You remember Jonah? And God says, Jonah, you must go to Nineveh for me. And Jonah did something that we're very prone to doing. He stamped his foot and he said to God, No, I'm not going. And he went his own way. But he by and by paid the price for going his own way. And there came a day when he was say, put over the side of a ship into a great ocean. Now I don't know what was in the mind of Jonah when he went over the side of that ship, but I'm pretty certain he did not know what God had in his mind for him. And that not in his wildest dreams did he think that a great fish would come along, a great sea creature, and swallow him up. But it did. God's ways, they are not our ways. You remember what Jonah did in that fish? The sea didn't take him, but he's inside that great sea creature. And it's most certainly death that's staring him in the face. But we hear that he cried unto his God. From the belly of hell he cried. And the amazing thing is that God answered the rebel. And by and by this sea creature vomits him out onto a Mediterranean shore. And that reminds us of this. That when we are in troubled waters, when we're going through great depths, that we don't need to know what the solution to our problems is, that it's not necessary for us to know that, that it's necessary for us to turn to the Lord and to cry to Him and to leave it with Him. But I don't think it's so much these literal depths. That's the problem for the psalm writer here, whoever the psalm writer is. We're not told. It seems that it's more spiritual depths that this man is going through. But you know what he's talking about uh, when he talks about depths in the spiritual realm. Now, how can we be sure that it's spiritual depths he's talking about? We know that because the thing that takes him out of these depths is the mercy of God, is the plenteous redemption of God. In other words, it's this man's sin that has been the big, big problem. And it's this man's sin that has gotten him into the depths that he's in. You see, mercy comes into play where there is sin. Redemption comes to the fore where men make a mess of their lives. And that is what is happening in this song. Lord, from the depths to thee I cried. My voice, Lord, do thou hear. To my supplications, voice, give an attentive ear. And I say it all over again. 
that we do not need to know the solution to our problem. It's enough to cry out to the Lord. That's true when it's literal waves that we are afraid of. And it's true when it's spiritual waves that we are afraid of. But you know what we're like. You know there are times when we work out in our minds. Now what are the probabilities of God acting in this way? You know we work out how am I going to get out of this problem? What's the solution going to be? We work out what a probable solution might be. Or even a possible solution. And if we worked it out, then yes, we'll, we'll engage in prayer about this matter. But then there are other times when the cloud is so dark and you're so low in the waters that you begin to not see any way out of it. And what do you do then? Well, then sometimes we begin to think there's little point in saying anything about this. There's little point in crying out. There's little point in giving it to the Lord at all. There's no point in praying. The night is far too dark and we are far too low in the water and all is gone. And we are foolish. We are foolish if we think that. This psalmist here is crying out and that is enough. And let's remind ourselves of this. It doesn't even have to be a verbalized cry. We don't have to put words to it because he hears the groan of the prisoner. You know, sometimes we hear others at prayer and it's so eloquent and it all fits together and it's all so lucid and how we wish we could pray like that. Well, it might be helpful to others if we could on occasions pray like, pray like that. But it won't be helpful to God because he knows what the groan is. And you know what it's like. You know what it's like when the burden is greatest. It's the groan that goes up. It registers in the ear of the Lamb of God. He can measure it. He understands the pangs. He puts tears in a bottle. He knows it. He knows it. We don't have to give it words. We just have to grow on heaven words. We don't have to know what the solution is. We just have to tell him what the problem is. And then there's another problem when we're in the depths. And that's the problem that this experience. And you don't need anybody at all to tell you that you've made this for yourself. Souls for their sin and their offense to sore affliction bear. What is the enemy of your soul whispering in your ear then? Well, what he whispers is this. Dare you go to your God, bearing in mind that you've created it all for yourself. Oh yes, you're in a mess, but you're in a mess of your own making. And will you dare go anywhere near your God, having made it yourself? 
And then he'll go on and the next whisper will be, just take a look at the mess. Is this the way a Christian should be? Are you sure you're a Christian at all? Have you not made a mistake about it? Should you not just throw in the towel and be done with it all and acknowledge that it's all been a mistake? But if we know Psalms like this and we know experiences like this, from the biblical record we will be able to say to him, Oh yes, this is the way it is. It isn't all crest of the wave stuff for God's people. Sometimes the billows come over them and yes, they go low, very low, but they're still God's people. Ah, but will you go to your God remembering that you've made it all yourself? Well, what does the psalmist say? Say, Lord, who shall stand if thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquity? Now he's telling us about himself. You know, one of the mistakes we make with the biblical writers is this. Oh, they were great people. God greatly blessed them. God revealed his truth to the human race through them. They were marvelous people, and that is true. But they were sinners as well. And if you look at some of the psalm writers, the one who wrote most of the psalm, he wasn't just a sinner, he was a great sinner. David himself got embroiled in so many messes in his own life. And that's what makes his writing so wonderful, that you know that you're not talking to a man uh, or reading about a man who doesn't know anything about it. You know that he's been there and you know that he's been through it. He's talking from his own experiences. And that's what makes them worth reading or that's part of it anyway. Sometimes we get into this frame of thinking, oh, this is a holy man who wrote this song or this passage of Scripture. A man whom God honoured. I'm a great man, a man who will be heard by heaven, but I'm not that kind of person. I know what I am. I know what I'm made of. I know what I've done. And I just couldn't do the things that that person's doing. That's not the way it is at all. And it's most certainly not the way it is in this psalm. What's he saying? Who shall stand? If thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, and it's unqualified, it includes himself. If God was going to deal with him according to his own iniquities, he would be swept away, even into the depths of hell itself. But that's not the way it is with this man. He can cry heavenwards, even with a sin-stained soul, even with a life that he's ashamed of, he can still stand and cry heavenwards. Why? But yet with thee forgiveness is that fear thou mayest be. In the midst of his darkness, he reminds himself of what kind of God he really is. The God of forgiveness, 
the God of forgiveness. And we should remind ourselves of that day in and day out. I don't know who wrote this psalm. For all we know, maybe it was David. There was many a day when he was in the depths for more than one reason. He was in the depths when there wasn't room for him anywhere in the land of Israel. You know, he was the greatest general that Saul had. And the people knew it as well. And they were singing that Saul has slain thousands, but David tens of thousands. And Saul began to get envious of him. And that envy ate away at him so much so that he decided that he must wipe him out. He wanted to slaughter him. And even when Saul could see the, the effects on the nation of the lack of this general, he still went ahead in pursuit of David. It's amazing what envy eating away the soul of a man will do. This man, David, went from the top rung on the ladder of society in Israel to a place where there wasn't even room for him in the bottom rung. He has to flee over the border to Achish, king of Gath, for safety. You know, the psychological turnaround in that man's life there brought him into the depths. He was ploughing the depths then. He would plough the depths over and over again because he made a mistake in the disciplining of his own family and those who are parents or grandparents here will understand the problem that that is. He didn't get it right and he paid a very, very high price for it. He paid a high price for it when he had to flee the city because of his own son, he was in the depths then. He was in the depths when one of his own sons was engaged in a dreadfully immoral act against one of his own daughters. He was in the depths then. He was in the depths when he looked on Bathsheba one day. And when he realized what had happened, he went on to murder her husband to cover up the mess he had made. He was in the depths. When the child of that relationship died, it was heavy going for David. He was a man of so many depths. And if he was the man who wrote this song, then we understand eh, what he's talking about. But then, it's not so much the man who wrote this song that we are to set our eye upon this night. It's the God of this song. The God of forgiveness. And what does he say about this God? I wait for God. My soul doth wait. My hope is in his word. More than they that for morning watch my soul waits for the Lord, my say, more than they that do watch the morning light to see. 
<clears throat> now it's difficult for us to get the force of what's been driven at here <clears throat> simply because of the age that we live in. Do you know if we're going through difficult times and it's during the night, there are so many things we can do to occupy our minds. We switch on the light, we can read a book, we can go down to the kitchen, we can have a coffee, we might want to switch on the radio, we might want to watch television, anything to take our minds off the problem. But you see, 3,000 years ago, these were not options. The night was a long night. There wouldn't even be books, there may be a scroll of some kind or another. But you see, the, the night would be a long, long night. And there was this longing for the morning light to come uh, so that uh, there would be something to, uh, to take the mind off the problem. There was this eager waiting for the morning. And what is the psalmist saying here? Well, he's telling us that he's waiting eagerly, longingly, for someone, for something eh, to come. You know, sometimes when we're in difficulties, we cry out to God, and then we just act as if there was no God anywhere. And then there are other times when we've got a problem and we cry out to God and that's it all forgotten about. We just go on our way. Not so with this man. He is waiting and he is waiting and he is waiting eagerly. We don't need to know what the solution to our problem is. We just need to tell God we've got a problem. But we must wait upon him for the answer. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. At length to me did incline my voice and cry to hear. And it's not because God didn't hear the first time he called. And it's not because God wasn't able to answer in an instant. It's because God had his own good time for the benefit of that individual eh, to give the answer. But that individual must wait eagerly upon God's own good time. And how does he close this song? Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with him mercies be, and plenteous redemption is ever found with him, and from all his iniquities he Israel shall redeem. What was at the heart of this man's problem, at the heart of this man's depths, were his own sins, and he's in the depths because of these things. The song eh, begins with this cry, this lament, this groan, this moan. But it doesn't end that way. He is singing about something that is plenteous. He's talking about not a scarce redemption, 
Not a grudged redemption, not a redemption that's hard to find, but he's talking about plenteous redemption. Plenteous. I know there are characters throughout Scripture who say interaction with the Lord made them sing in their souls because of this plenteous redemption. Do you remember the woman of Samaria who sat in the well of Sychar with Christ? And he asked her for a drink of water and it was the beginnings of a marvellous conversation. And she wants to go off at all kinds of tangents. Oh, I don't belong to the same church as you. But he's not interested in that. He comes down to the things that really matter. And he puts his finger on the sore point in her soul. Where's your husband? And she must have been squirming then. Because she had had five husbands. And she wasn't even married to the man she was now living with. Oh, but you remember how that woman uh, uh, reacted to that conversation. She went running into that town and she was crying out to the people, Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And you can well imagine how the people of that town reacted. They would have been taken aback. They would have been aghast. They would have been saying to this woman, Why on earth are you talking like this? about the things that you've done. We know very well about the things that you've done. They embarrass us and they fill us with so much shame. And you ought to be ashamed as well. And you ought to just keep quiet about them. And what would you say in response to that? Ah oh, yes, it's all true. But you come with me. Come with me and I'll show you a man. And this man is the man who is full of forgiveness, who has got oceans of mercy, who is plenteous in redemption. Come with me and I'll show you a man, a man whom I can speak of when I've spoken of all the things in my life that I'm horribly embarrassed about, but he's covered them all. He's washed them all away. Come. Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. And then when you think of the Apostle Peter, the man who thought he was something that he wasn't really, supposing this whole world forsakes you, I will not. And even if it means going to prison, I will gladly go. I will give the ultimate. I will lay down my life for you. And it wasn't very long when he was saying, I don't know a single thing about him. And on the third time, he is doing it with curses and with oaths. And I rather think that he went out into the back streets of Jerusalem, weeping his heart out, thinking that he was done with Christ forevermore. And that that was it all over. 
that there wasn't forgiveness and redemption in the bosom of Christ for a man who would go this far. But you remember the words to the, of the angels? Go tell my disciples and Peter that I will meet with them again. And what happens at that meeting? Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. There is the man who is part of the team that turns the world upside down. And these are the words of people who are not the friends of Christ. They came from the outside. These men had turned the world upside down. How can it be done? How can a man who has gone to pieces, who is weeping his heart out, who is convinced that it's all over, how can he turn the world upside down? He can turn it upside down when he gets a real insight of what he's made of and his own nothingness and his own patheticness and his own awfulness alongside what Christ is really made of. He can go forth telling everybody everywhere, yes, that's the kind of man I am, but I want to tell you about another man. And that man is Christ. And that message is reverberating 2,000 years later. The plenteous redemption that there is in Christ. And we ought to go on our way with thankfulness in our souls this night. And our ambition ought to be that we will be plenteous in our efforts in response to his plenteous redemption towards us. May God grant that it would indeed be true. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank Thee for what Thou art. We stand ashamed of what we are. But if we come to Thee, we know that all that we are can be washed away and that new creatures that we are in Christ can more and more come to the fore. Oh, enable us, we pray Thee, to have thankfulness in our souls towards Thee this night and in all the days that lie ahead. And all we ask is in Christ's name. Amen.